Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to 2 Kings chapter 19? And if you'd like to get ahead, go to Philippians chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 19, and Philippians chapter 4, in a Bible study I've entitled, Take It to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. You know, we're studying the life of King Hezekiah, one of the best kings that ever lived of both Judah and Israel. Even though, as we learned last time, he wasn't a perfect king. And I think that's an encouragement to us because we're not perfect either. And yet the banner of our life can still be as a man or a woman that served God well uh, with all of our mistakes. And I'm grateful. I, I look at it in my own life as I compare my own life and where I am now compared to the people that God used. And I'm grateful that God uses me. And I'm grateful that God uses you, even though I do make mistakes. Do you make mistakes? Is there any mistakes in the house? Give me an amen. Of course there is. And so the Bible says in Isaiah 25, verse 1, O Lord, you're my God, and I will exalt you, and I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, and your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And so anything good that comes out of our lives, God gets the credit. Anything bad that comes out of our lives, we take responsibility for that and ask the Lord to help us. So notice in verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 19, it says, And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. This was a good decision. The enemy is coming, the attack is imminent, and he takes the place of humility. The tearing of the clothes was symbolic of humility. And he goes into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, to the son of Amos. And they said to him, verse 3, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants, verse 5, of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, and with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So King Hezekiah's response to crisis and imminent warfare is twofold. Number one, he goes to the house of the Lord. Now, don't you know by now that when you set your heart toward the things of God, that God meets you there? Because think of the options just even in this evening. Think of the options, and even on the radio or with your computer open, of all the different choices you could make. 
Uh, Let's say that you had 10 choices and one of them is toward God and nine of them is away from God. And I'm not even saying that the nine are necessarily sinful, just not in the way that would bring you to a place of spiritual thought, bring you to the place of spiritual submission. It wouldn't be spiritual at all. And so because you've chosen, because we've chosen to set our eyes upon the Lord and even gather together, you'll be blessed that you came. God will honor his word in your life. That, that God has a word for you even in this moment that you're listening to the Bible study, in this section of the Bible, and in the illustrations that will be brought forth, and the things that God has for you. So going to, number one, to the temple, to the house of God, and number two, to a man of God. Because think about it. Let's just throw out another option here. If you're in a time of trouble and you go to a bar to an unbeliever, where will that take you? Probably not too far in the things of God. Or, or you go and you hang out, maybe it's not even in a bar or to a, a, a man that doesn't know the Lord. Maybe you go to, you know, to the gym and, and then you hook up with somebody and connect with somebody that, that has no heart for the things of God. You know, it, I, what I'm saying is this. Hezekiah was wise to not only go to the place of worship, but to send for a wise man. He was sending for a man of God, no matter what he would say. And it's always good for us to be in a place where there's worship and we're gaining wisdom from men and women of God. Why? Because the Bible says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And it is a deception at times where we run to the wrong place and to the wrong people for help in time of need. And may the Lord teach us. What a great decision this is because Isaiah gives him a word. He says, it's going to be okay. Trust God. It's going to be okay. Trust God. And he says, three things are going to happen. Did you notice? Three things. So he gives them very specific. So trust God. And then he gives them very three specific things. Notice, he says, Isaiah tells him, he says, don't be afraid of the words which you have heard. This is verse six, with which the servants have of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. And then verse 7, he tells him, I'm going to send a spirit, number one, upon him. Number two, he's going to hear a rumor. And number three, he's going to ca- I'm going to cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now, we're going to read the rest of the chapter where these things take place. But just to give you a little heads up, number one, I think that that spirit that's coming is probably the death of 185,000 people by an angel. Notice in verse 35, it says, it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out, killed in the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000 people. Now, I would, I would be encouraged in war if an angel wiped out 185,000 people. And so Isaiah is saying, don't worry about it. Secondly, he's going to get a rumor, which I think back is in verse 9, this rumor about Ethiopia coming to distract him. And then thirdly, the sword. And we see in verse 37 that it came to pass as he was worshiping, and this is the king of Assyria, in the temple of Nisroch, his god, little g, that his sons Adaramelech, <laughs> you know his name, their names, struck him down with what? The sword. One of the foundational things that God has given to us to base our lives upon is his promises, his word. Building our lives upon the solid foundation of his word. That if you look back on history, I know, I know some things are unsettled in your life today. I know some questions are unanswered. I know some pain exists. 
I know some worries and anxieties surround us. But if we look back throughout the scriptures, the overarching testimony of God is that he has kept his promise to everyone that's come before us. And as they were living life in real time, like you and I are living life in real time, they also were wondering, what's happening? What's going to come of this? How will it end up? What's the end result? And now in the presence of God, they can say with absolute, if they were given, you know, where we learn in Hebrews later on that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, if they were given a voice into our lives, they would say, keep going. It's true. God is faithful. He'll keep his promises. I know it's foggy right now. You're uncertain. But when you get into trouble, go to the place where people are worshiping and surround yourself with godly people and trust the promises of God. Now, someone, someone, wants, someone went through and spent a tremendous amount of time counting up the promises of God. And one person came up with 7,800 plus promises of God, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm sure if he went back to recount, he probably would come up with more and come up with more. But the real question is, how many promises of God in your life and mine do you really need to carry on? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness in your life. Just the very fact that you are born again proves the existence of God. (laughs) Just the fact that your life's been redeemed, that you are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That you can trust him with your salvation. That what he's begun in your life, he's going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That he's going to perfect that which concerns us. That, That... Salvation isn't on your shoulders so that you continue in good works. But it's his good work and his faithfulness. It's not you. Can you imagine if salvation was dependent upon you and me and my good works? How many times would we go in and out of salvation in a day, in a minute, in an hour? But see, God, he seals us with the Holy Spirit. He comes to permanently indwell us. It's a seal that cannot be broken. It's a seal that God himself puts upon your life. Let me me show you something that's so encouraging. Would you turn over to Romans chapter 8? Because Paul was so caught up in this truth of the sufficiency of God and his assurance. Paul was assured of the finished work of Jesus Christ in his life. Even though what he was facing was testing him and taunting him and causing him to question, no doubt. But notice in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It's just such a great chapter. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Because we have this, verse 19, earnest expectation of the creation that eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Because we don't know how we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be under. He searches the hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Because whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's your destination. You're headed toward the image of Jesus Christ, the work of God, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice in verse 31, 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And who, verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter, Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, powers nor things present nor things to come, height nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice, our Lord. Paul's writing to believers and saying, look, it doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter what you think, what trial you're going through. Nothing and no one can separate you from the love of God. And guess what? Any other created thing, if you like to write in your Bibles, you can just write your name right there because not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. He will complete what he finished in your life. He will do the work that he promised to do. And he will change us from the inside out so that our lives, they're lives of cooperation or obedience. Like two keys in our lives that truly help us along the path is surrender and obedience. Those two elements, as we cultivate them in our lives, our willing surrender to our loving God and our willing obedience to his will. Think about obedience for a second. When you want to do something, how much of an act of obedience really is that? Like when you want to do something, there is obedience involved. I understand that. But isn't a real effort of obedience when you don't want to do it? Similar to submission. Yes, there is submission. We voluntarily submit all the time. But isn't submission much more valuable when you don't want to submit? When you want to go your own way and do your own thing. But then the Bible says, no, no, no. Lives are lived in much more peace and joy when you choose submission. And you say, okay, Lord, I'll choose submission. But I don't want to choose submission, but I will choose submission because, God, that's your way. It's the same with obedience. Acts of obedience really come, I mean, they they magnify in our lives when we don't want to obey. (laughs) And we choose to do exactly what God tells us to do. Why? Because we surrender our wills to his. It's a beautiful work of the Spirit inside of us. Imagine some of the things that you have done and obeyed that you didn't want to do. And yet how blessed you were to obey the Lord. That he inspired you and you followed through and that cooperative effort. Hezekiah does the right thing here. He goes into the place where people are worshiping and he asks a man of God for help. And it's encouraging to me as I'm meditating on this message this last week I've been thinking about this a lot in my life. And it would be well, maybe some of you will adopt this. But it came to me way back when we were studying through the Gospel of John, verse by verse. And we came to that place. Just jot it down. I'll read it to you. In John chapter 6, in verse 5. 
at the feeding of the thousands. It says, Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a multitude coming, a great multitude coming toward him. He turned to Philip and said, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So he asked him a question. What are we going to do to feed these guys? But the rest of verse 6 says, but this he said to test him. And here, listen to this. For he himself knew what he would do. And to me, that's greatly encouraging that God already knows what he's going to do. <laughs> he already knows. We may not know. Hezekiah is afraid. Assyria, the king of Assyria, these threatening words, they're coming to attack. What are we going to do? But God already knows what he's going to do. He's going to send a spirit. The king's going to hear a rumor and he's going to fall by the sword. That's what's going to happen. And Hezekiah would have never learned that had he not asked. And had he not gone to the place of worship and asked the man of God. And so often I just don't understand what God is doing. I don't understand what's happening around me. I don't have the kind of understanding that would give me some kind of peace of mind. Where is he taking me? Where does he want me? How does he want me to respond? What's the situation? How is it going to end? What's the end game? Why is he allowing this over here? Why is this guy doing that? Why is she saying that? All of these things that surround our lives. And yet, I can cling to the word of God that God already knows what he's going to do in my life. He already knows how it's going to work out. He already knows what he's going to do in working all things together for the good in my life. He already knows. And I can trust the one that knows. You know, there's a saying, a real saying that's kind of become cliche, but I want, you to, I want you to always listen to the cliches because they actually have very powerful truth in them. But because they're cliches, we kind of ignore them. But there's this cliche, a Christian cliche that's out there that says, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. That's some powerful stuff right there. That's a powerful truth. Because Jesus already knows what he's going to do. In Hezekiah's day, God already knew what he was going to do. And in your life today, in the 21st century, with all that's swirling around your life, God already knows what he's going to do with you. He already knows. And it's already going to come to that perfect end of conforming you and me into the image of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of how Paul was writing. If you would, I asked you to open to Philippians chapter 4. Would you turn there with me? I'm reminded in those times of anxiety and worry, in those times of great concern in our lives, in those times of small worries and concerns, that we would follow through with what the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul in chapter 4, verse 6. Hopefully you have this highlighted, maybe circled, but in Philippians, maybe memorized. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And finally, brethren, whatever things are true, and whatever things are noble, and whatever things are just, and whatever things are pure, and whatever things are lovely, and whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And... The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Focus your mind in the, toward the things of the Lord and focus your life toward the things of the Lord. Those two keys. 
Cast those cares upon the Lord because he cares for you, as we'll see coming back in 2 Kings with Hezekiah here. Hezekiah is told how it's going to end. He's told how it's going to come about. But notice, and pick up with me now in verse 8, he says, So the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirkoth, king of Ethiopia, look, he's come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, verse 11, You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezphah and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Who is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Sepharvarim and Hena and Iva? <laughs> it makes sense that the king, now that he's harassed by these other countries, is, would send another threatening letter and another threatening message to Hezekiah. Because I found over the years that all the devil really has is words. That's all he really has to throw your way is words. Like he, he can inspire all kinds of weird activity in our lives just by simply lying to us, by trying to undermine what God has said, by, by trying to throw upon you false identity. And then, you know, sometimes the words of the devil come out of people because we know that happened with Peter. We know that happened with Peter in the very presence of Jesus. Because remember, Jesus turns to him and says what? Get behind me, Satan. Do you think Peter had, you know, a red face and horns? He was Peter. And he wasn't the devil, nor was he possessed by the devil. But he was speaking words that reflected the satanic, demonic origin of his words. That's where they came from. And so the devil, he just has words. As we have learned many times before, you know, whoever made up this, this saying, this childhood saying, we need to find, track him down. He's probably not with us anymore, but we should track him down because I want you to finish what I'm saying, okay? Because if you know this, you know this saying, I want you to join along, even if you guys are online or on the radio, just in your car, just join along, right? So we learned this growing up. Sticks and... This would break, but... What a lie. <laughs> Words actually hurt more than sticks and stones sometimes. Some of you are still reeling from words that were spoken to you when you were just a child that deeply wounded you. And unfortunately, you developed a habit of believing them. But they're not true. They're lies. Some things we have heard and been said to us that we would rather have a broken arm because at least you can go to the doctor, set it, a couple weeks, you get the cast off. But sometimes the words, they linger. And so what do you do with words? What do you do with a threatening letter? What do you do with all the gossip and slander? That's, what do you do with them? Well, let's look to Hezekiah here. So it says in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. He took it to the Lord. 
Now, isn't that the first mistake we make? Not taking it to the Lord. I, I am guilty of this more than I ever would want to be in a lifetime. Where I receive a text, I receive an email. You know, not, not so many uh, anonymous letters come through the office anymore because you can just open the letter, look at the end, there's no name on it, shred it. So instead, people make fake email addresses and they send letters that way. And so I'll get an email and I'll read it. And before you know it, I'm hitting that little arrow that goes doop to reply to it. Instead of just taking it before the Lord. I may or may not need to answer it. I don't know. I should ask God. Now, that's not just true for anonymous letters. <laughs> it's also true for letters and emails and text messages and, and phone messages and voicemail. All of them for people we know and don't know. We should take it before the Lord. Because you may or may not need to un respond. Who knows what God wants you to do and why he would have that. You see, Hezekiah received this threatening letter, not unlike Nehemiah. As the enemies came against Nehemiah when he was rebuilding the wall, they came multiple times. Multiple threatening letters, even open letters. You know, what would be the equivalent of a blog today or posting it up on Facebook. Oh, everybody, I want you to know my life and how much I hate somebody. That's what they were doing in Nehemiah. And so he gets the letter and he lays it before the Lord. If you leave with one thing today, God is reminding you, lay that stuff before the Lord before you do anything. Because you probably won't end up doing anything but praying. But notice when he got the letter. After he received the word of God. God already told him it was going to happen. So when you receive that promise from God, and you're going to build your life upon it, you can expect that things are going to be ramped up to come against that promise. So, oh, the gods, why are you trusting God? And don't you know how many victories I've had? Which were really all true. The king of Assyria was very victorious, but he hadn't taken on the one true God yet. He was very victorious, so the facts were the facts. But they don't undermine the truth of God, because what? He's going to hear a rumor, already happened. That's what prompted the letter. Because he's being harassed by all these other countries. And he knows that he's going to need some help in order to take on Hezekiah. So what does he do? He sends him a letter. Mark verse 14 in your life. And just notice, he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. Maybe one day, maybe one day in our church, this church right here, you'll come to service early. You'll be here because you just happen to be able to get here early, 6.30, 6.45. And you'll see somebody right here on their knees over a piece of paper because they obeyed this. They brought it to the house of the Lord and they laid it before the Lord. And it's symbolic, of course. But imagine, just begin to pray as the enemy would want to send different letters and different things that we would learn to lay it before the Lord. I've never regretted laying some difficult situation before God and waiting for his direction. But I've always regretted each time I've taken things into my own hands and attempted to solve God's problems for him. Because, you know, if you received a threatening letter recently and you, you're a child of God, that problem and letter belongs to God. That's his problem. Because he bought you and me with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when I have a problem, I can truly come to God and say, God... Do you see this problem that's yours? 
How are you going to solve it? What are you going to do about it? Am I going to be a part of it, perhaps? Maybe I'm not. But God, this is your problem because my life belongs to you. And not only are you affirming your faith, but Hezekiah, he doesn't take things into his own. He's a king. Number one in charge. And those of you that have positions of authority, you know you have a tendency just to take care of things because that's what you do. But there are times when God wants you to take care of things exactly the opposite of the way you want to take care of them. That's what the beauty of being led by the Spirit is. So he comes and he lays it before the Lord. Number two, he, verse 15, what does it say? Then Hezekiah, say it out loud, prayed. Say it out loud. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. So he took it to the Lord and he prayed before the Lord. O God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kings of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. By the way, if you were here with us this weekend and we studied through Leviticus 16, we learned that the high priest once a year would take the blood of the bull and the goat, go into the Holy of Holies with his hands, spread that blood where? On the Ark of the Covenant, which was on top was a lid with the two cherubim, the two angels, cherubim, and it would be there. Remember, that was the one place that God proclaimed that he would meet his people. We all learned that, right? We all learned that this weekend. So now you understand as the Bible comes together, Hezekiah, as he's praying, says, verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. Where was that? On the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, where the, where the blood of the bull and the goat would come in once a year to cover the sins of the people every year, by which by the time we get to Hebrews, Jesus is what? The great high priest who offered himself a wanton for all sacrifice. Bible study is pretty fascinating stuff. And you never know how they're all going to tie together. You you never know how it's all going to come together. Notice in verse 16. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly the Lord, the kings of Assyria, have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, have they have destroyed them. Verse 19. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. As I mentioned earlier, I can't tell you how often I haven't done this. Too many times in my life that I haven't done what Hezekiah's, the king of Judah, has done here. How much stress and tension and worry would be removed from our lives if we would just take it to the Lord and pray. Just take it to the Lord and pray. You know, we get the messages, we get the letters, we get the emails, the Facebook messages, the Twitter stuff, the Instagram stuff, Snapchat stuff, and whatever they invent in the new coming years to communicate. And how we must develop and cultivate the habit of laying these things before the Lord. As one commentator put it, Warren Wiersbe, he said, and I quote, When the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. When the outlook is bleak and difficult, look up. And I can say personally at times, I have spread things out before the Lord and he's answered. 
and he's helped, and you move forward. And the king, notice, had one great burden on his heart, and that was what? To glorify God. He laid this before, not necessarily because it was a big burden, but it was, and he laid it before, not necessarily because he didn't know what to do, because he didn't in many ways, but he laid it before God because he knew that God's glory was at stake. It was him. It was his name. It was his reputation. As you read through the heroes of the faith, they all had the same concern, the glory of God and his reputation. Hezekiah was more concerned for God's glory than even for Judah's safety. He saw deliverance as a chance for Israel to fulfill her purpose for which God raised her up. Wearsby said this again, let me quote. Some people rush into the Lord's presence whenever they face a problem, but God never hears their voices at any other time. This wasn't true of King Hezekiah. He was a man who at times sought the blessing of the Lord on the people, but he also sought to know the word of God and the will of God, and this gave him power in prayer. Blessed is that nation whose leaders know how to pray. And I would say blessed is that church whose leaders know how to pray. And blessed is that home whose leaders know how to pray. Blessed is that workplace whose leaders know how to pray. Because God is there in the midst. Well, Isaiah again answers in verse 20. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, that which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. It's so wonderful to know that God hears us when we pray every single time. And here's the answer which the Lord has spoken. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? Verse 23. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon, I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to all its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it, how I have brought it to pass that you should be for the crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins? Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as great... They were as the grass of the field and the green herb as the grass on the housetops and the grain blighted before it's grown. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in. Your rage against me because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I'll put my hook in your nose and my bridle on your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. And so the first part of Isaiah's answer to Israel is a rebuke. And they're going to go into captivity. God used Assyria to chasten Israel. And yet at the end, Jerusalem will prevail. And isn't that true? Don't we learn that in life? The chastening hand of God. The Bible says it's not pleasant in the moment. But it brings about a reminder first of God's love and the correction that we need in our lives. Even you parents, as you discipline your children, as you bring discipline upon them, it's not punishment. It's training. You bring training upon your children because one day you know they're going to be adults just like you. And many of us, as we were training our kids, truly wanted them to avoid all the bad decisions that we made. 
to embrace God at a much earlier age so that they could live for Him and avoid all the consequences or many of the consequences that we chose not to. And so there was training involved, chastening. Notice next in verse 29, this shall be a sign to you. Now, the second thing Isaiah says is that you'll be fed. There's a rebuke, but there's also going to be food. He says, you shall eat this year such as grows of itself. And then the second year, which springs up from the same. And also the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And so he says, the Assyrians are going to take possession and destroy the land and their food source. But as the Assyrians come and destroy everything, he says, there's also going to be, it's going to regrow. And it speaks to us of a, that when there's a barrenness in our life, when there is a lack in our life, when we look to the left and to the right and we wonder what is going to happen, you know that God will restore what's been lost. He will restore. You'll eat once again. Now, finally, look at in verse uh, 31. It says, For out of Jerusalem, well, excuse me, verse 30, and the remnant of the escaped, the remnant who have escaped out of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant's sake. And so now the promise of deliverance. God's word is to deliver his remnant from the enemies and make them fruitful again. So notice what happens. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were all the corpses all dead. What a sight that must have been. But I'm encouraged to read these words. And it came to pass on a certain night. Isn't that true? Have you not found that to be true in your life? That God can move instantly. It came to pass on a certain night. Those of you that are waiting on God. Those of you that are interceding. Those of you that are pressing in. Those of you that can see many days and many weeks and many months behind you of seeming silence or no action from God. It came to pass on one night. God acts. It came to pass one night that 185 they were just wiped out the power of the angelic realm so Shennacherib verse 36 king of Assyria departed and went away returned home and remained at Nineveh and it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch his god that his sons uh, Drimelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat then Irshadon his son reigned in his place it's good is it not to be reminded again that God knows what he's going to do in your life he already knows and we can trust him to learn the habit of laying it before the Lord and praying it to the Lord learning as Peter tells us casting all our cares upon him because he cares for you as we learn to be anxious for nothing but in all things by prayer and supplication you know, the, before we cast our cares, Peter says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might lift you up. 
And you know, sometimes it's very difficult to be under the mighty hand of God, to submit to the mighty hand of God. And yet in due season, at just the right time, God moves in our lives. And it came to pass one night. And knowing that that humbling that's happening, that dependence that's building, is leading to a precious promise. Because never at any time have you been so desperate for the things of God and for the presence of God and for the answer of God and for the intimacy of God and for the assurance of God than in this time of troubling and this time of humility, this time of desperation. In those times of anxiousness and worry, you cast them upon the Lord. In those times of letters and bills and difficulties, we take it to the Lord and we pray it to the Lord. That we cast these things. The idea is casting once and for all. That we cast them before the Lord, knowing that He cares for us. Not just to simply get them off our minds, although that helps, and to get them away from us, but because we know that God cares for us. And whatever way we're casting is the direction that we're heading. You know, if we don't come to the house of God, then most likely we're going to be going somewhere else. And if we don't seek a godly man or woman of God, then most likely we're going to go somewhere else. And in the difficulty in our lives, we need to go to those places and we need to go to those people they are going to take us to the chief shepherd. Not just among us, although we can help one another, but our help comes from the Lord. And so we want to be surrounded by people that will take us to the place of help and encouragement. And you know, Jesus looks at you and he says, why don't you feed them? Or he answers your prayer with that letter. What are you going to do about it? And you're like, I'm praying to you. What do you mean? What am I going to do about it? And then can't you hear the rest of the verse? He told him that to test him. Because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. <laughs> that to me, it just brings great comfort and encouragement to my life. So much uncertainty swirls around my life presently. But really, it's swallowed up by the certainty of my God. Not the uncertainty of circumstances and things that surround my life. Over which, by the way, we have no control. That's the great myth. <laughs> we have no control. We don't control what people do, what people say. We don't control it. But we do control surrender and what is the other one? Obedience. You guys better write those down. Even if you write them on your hands, so you can write them down later. Our surrender and obedience, that when the letter comes, where do we go? To the house of God. When the trouble comes, who do we ask? A man of God. Why? Because those two will take us to the God who answers. He already knows what he's going to do. And so, Father, we are encouraged by Hezekiah, even though I think also convicted by him. In this case, he did what was right. Isaiah did what was right. God, you always do what's right. And I'm grateful today that you would give us assurance in our relationship with you. That we would not focus on that which we don't control, but rather we would trust you because it happened one night that an angel was sent out. It happened one night it happened one day where you exploded on the scene of our lives. 
and we were born again. Our lives were forever changed. Never to be unborn again, but rather to live a fruitful, glorious life, trusting in you by faith, receiving from you all that you have for us. And so I pray for the letters that are here today, for the bills, for the notes, for the court paperwork, for the stacks of work, you know, stacks of paper at work, for the questions. Just symbolically today, God, we lay them before you. And we ask you, what are we to do? For your glory, God. What's going to bring you the most glory? How will you resolve the circumstances of our lives that will bring most honor, most glory, and most attention to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.